So nice to have you with us this Saturday morning. Personal support workers are the backbone of health care, but the bottom of the power structure. Is this the beginning of an article uh, we saw recently at theconversation.com, written by Professor Barty Setti from Western University in London, Ontario. Professor Setti is with us this morning to set up our conversation, the first of two on personal support workers. Professor Setti, Barty, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, good morning. And it's I'm at the King's uh, School of Social Work. So it's uh, at Western University, but the King's School of Social Work. Excellent. Good to have you with us this morning. As a student, back in the day, you were, for a while, a personal support worker, weren't you? Yes. So let's talk about what personal support workers do. Who are these people and what are the types of work that we are most familiar with them doing in our healthcare system? So as personal support worker, uh, you know, when I was working at Red Cross, they work in nursing homes, retirement homes, uh, community services. uh, But I also went uh, to people's homes to provide care, such as it may be personal care. Um, It could be just a social contact. Uh, It could be cooking or cleaning the house. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're pretty diverse. Indeed. So, and, and of course, they are found not only in um, care homes and facilities, but as you point out, a, a lot of these uh, workers work for companies that go into people's homes. Uh, and as you have experienced both, and just an anecdotal moment, if you don't mind, which is the more desirable of the two from the point of view of the worker going into people's homes, Barty, or being in a facility, a, a, a brick and mortar establishment so i can just speak for myself for yeah. me it was uh, one-on-one contact with in people's homes okay you know you got to know the person um you know especially if you were uh, consistently going to see that person uh it was good for the not just for the worker but the client because they were not changing you know every week somebody else wasn't coming and you you know formed a kind of a uh relationship so i really enjoyed going into people's homes well you you describe in your article as a matter of fact uh, um, again relating back to your student days as as a worker uh, how that in some cases you would go into people's homes to do whatever care work you were assigned to do and realizing pretty quickly that you were about the only social contact many of these people had for quite long periods of time yes that's correct so let's talk about the individuals who are, doing, who are doing this sort of work. You talk about racialized individuals in your article, Professor Setti. Uh, what percentage of workers, of personal support workers, would you estimate, not at an accurate number, Anita, but it's just sort of a ballpark number, so again, we can get our heads around this. What percentage of personal support workers right across Canada are uh, foreign workers? So we don't have the exact statistics, but as I pointed out, the Stats Canada 2018 uh, looked at the figures and they said, at least in Ontario, they make up they are 13% of the total workforce, but 25% of the workers in nursing and residential care facilities, uh, they are 27% are in home care. So they make up 13% of the total Ontario workforce, but 25% work in uh, care facilities and 27% in home health care. And that number is going to rise. 
Right. Uh, and if there's one thing COVID-19 has taught Canadians, Professor Seti, that right across the entire economy, we are surprisingly dependent on foreign workers, whether it's healthcare, agriculture, uh, in mining. There are many segments of the economy that many of us are surprised to find are quite dependent on foreign workers. Here in British Columbia, for example, right now, we have crops in the orchards that are, are basically rotting because we haven't got enough people to pick them. Many of the people who would be here to do that work are foreign nationals not allowed to come in. So again, we're becoming tuned into this reality, Professor Seti. But you also point out that the workers that we're acknowledging, many in many cases for the first time, are at the bottom of the power structure. And, and, and is that uh, you say that as the numbers are likely to increase, your prediction, what about their status on the power structure? I think that, that that's the, the reason I wrote that article. I think we have to start having conversations on racism and ethnicity. Uh, you know, while the creation of, of fair and supportive work environments are important for all staff, all PSWs, I think we have to start recognizing that there is a disfranchised specific group of employees that really, really we have to consider in terms of, uh, like you said, the foreign worker, mm -hmm. the immigration status, their uh, uh, ethnicity. Uh, and also what we don't consider very often is geography, meaning that where does the worker work? Because experiences will be different in Toronto compared to where my study was done in Brantford. Okay, that's true. It's sort of a, uh, you, you, Brantford was a, a, a smaller, not ur, not rural setting, but certainly not ultra urban like working in, in downtown Toronto. By contrast, was it exactly? So let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the connecting the dots, getting those workers who are coming in in, in greater numbers as time goes on involved in the conversation and perhaps more eligible to participate in the power structure. First of all, let's start with standards. Uh, when one comes to this uh, occupation, as you did when you were a student, a university student, what sort of uh, preparation did you have to undergo? What sort of standards exist right now for personal support workers? Do they all have to become accredited in some way? And if so, how? So uh, when I did that, I, it has advanced. I only did a nine-month-old college. So it was a nine-month-old program for okay. a personal support worker. Mm -hmm. But now um, most of the colleges, uh, to my understanding, is two years. And I don't think they are formally regulated by statutory bodies. So the reason I say they're going to rise, and it's not just me, there's evidence suggesting one of the major issues that separates person support workers who are Canadian-born to foreign-trained workers is that they are de-skilled, meaning that their credentials are not recognized in Canada. Right, so right. they're kind of forced into that work. So they are universe, my, most of the participants in my, my, both my studies, doctoral and postdoctoral, were university-educated. And so they're coming to these cities. Uh, they, you know, it's better than catching chickens, as one of them said. <laughs> so now I'm, you know, I was a chicken catcher. Now I'm a personal support worker. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, uh, and when you ask that, how do we get them about the power structure? Yeah. It's a very complex issue. It's not just the worker. I think we have to look at it from the perspective of the employer as well as from the perspective of the government. So they are not regulated. We know their job is precarious, job insecurity, part-time, casual works, 
fear of job losses, heavy workloads. So we have to look at the employers. Uh, you know, what are the workplace accommodations? Not just the accommodations, but the work culture. Mm-hmm. Are we having conversation? Are the employers having conversations with their staff and the clients and the families about having being served by a black or a racial, racially diverse uh, employee? We have conversations about how are the medicines working? You know, mm-hmm. how is the food? Why don't we start having conversation? And the second is the policy. You know, how do we improve that precarious conditions in terms of wages, benefits, you know, how the addressing the shortage? How do we make it the work more desirable and sustainable for all PSWs? Yeah, I, I want to just come back um, uh, to a uh, halfway through that uh, sentence and talk about something that you brought up. You talked about having conversations about individuals being attended by racialized person. So I take uh, uh, from that, I'm inferring from that remark that there are examples, perhaps too many, of instances where uh, non-white workers go into homes or care facilities and are rejected by uh, residents on the basis of what of, of their physical appearance. It's absolutely true. And uh, so in my study, I had both European white uh, PSWs uh, in the double duty caregivers as well as racialized. Okay. So the, both of them experienced the same shortage of work, de-skilling uh, work conditions. However, none of the European white immigrants, so the immigration status is the same, the same work conditions, same wages, but they did not experience being racialized. So as I talked in the conversation is only two examples of uh, being, you know, the examples that I provided of the black woman trying to clean a white resident was, is an absolute pervasive example of racialization. Mm -hmm. And there were many, and it wasn't just from the clients, but also from the managers. For example, a manager telling a worker who's washing her hands, and we had all around COVID, wash your hands. And that's why I ended. Just imagine if the public were told, hey, a black PSW doesn't need to wash her hands because they will never become clean. And that was an exact quote from her. Why are you washing your hands? Your, your black hands will never become white. We have to start, you know, looking at the seriousness of this. You know, we know that racism negatively impacts health, but we also have to look at it. You have a worker who's oppressed, who's racialized, who's working multiple jobs who has a, maybe have a precarious, uh, you know, not just work status in terms of immigration. But how is she going to provide service to a family member? You know, I really want the, re- the, the listeners to imagine. Imagine an adult in their life who is currently, right now, being served by a PSW. Mm-hmm. And here's this PSW having multiple operations. You know, I think the risk is both for the worker and people that they're serving. We're talking about personal support workers with Professor Barty Setti at uh, the University of Western Ontario. And now we are delighted to welcome a colleague and in fact, a teammate in terms of research on the topic. Dr. Allison Williams is with us from McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Dr. Williams, Allison, good morning. Thank you for joining us. 
Good morning. Thank you very much for having me. Indeed, it's a pleasure. We talked to your colleague, Barty Setti, a few minutes ago and got a, an understanding as to the nature of the work that personal support workers do across Canada. And, and in many cases, the lack of support they receive, particularly for workers who are racialized, who are foreign workers from other countries who have uh, difficulties uh, integrating into the Canadian system. And that isn't helped at all by what Dr. Uh, what Professor uh, Seti called de-skilling. And this is a problem that we've seen for many, many years in Canada, where a, a, a person with credentials from another country in healthcare or in other skills uh, has a difficulty, in fact, re- incredible resistance in many cases, in having those credentials recognized in Canada, certainly not as straight across as they would hope to have. But what we hope and, and what we've tried to accommodate in some way, Alice, and this is where you ne- I need your help, have we not, over the years, recognizing this deficiency, have we not in instituted a series of upgrade testing where a person with foreign credentials can come to Canada and apply for such testing in order to gain that uh, equalization of credentials here? Yes, that's certainly available with many of the professions, such as medicine, and uh, that has been in place for some time. But it's the, uh, the, the non-professional uh, careers that are more challenging to equate. I see. Given the different cultures and the different work life practices. Right. Because each country has a has a you know, a specific work life expectation, you know, different technologies, different uh, uh, training needs and so on and so forth. So those other professions often are not necessarily professions, other uh, careers or um, uh, uh, work uh work opportunities um, don't transfer as equitably with that upgrade. Okay. Um, and I think that's the frustration that many um, immigrants have coming to Canada um, is the, uh, the, the lack of uh, equal opportunity around the work that they did in their home country and the work that, that they're expected to do in Canada. Uh, and, you know, that Canada's not the only place either. Like most, uh, most uh, countries across the Western world um, have the same conundrum with respect to integrating new immigrants. That's right. And are we any better at it? Are, are, for example, maybe that's not the right way to ask the question. Let me let me rephrase. Are, are there examples around the world, Allison, that we can look to and go, you know, we should be doing a little more of that? Right. Yeah. I wish I, um, I, wish I could tell you uh, um, uh, uh, confidently. Um, which countries are, are doing a great job of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my understanding is that the Scandinavian countries as a whole are usually much more um, competent at uh, transitioning immigrants into their society, whether it be specific to language, specific to training, specific to schooling, um, and so forth. So um, uh, the Scandinavian countries would be where I would look. Okay. Now, there's also something called uh, is the Caregiver Friendly Workplace Standard. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and and how uh, how how much teeth does it have? Okay, great question. Yeah. So, with respect to the latter question around the teeth, it's actually a voluntary standard, and uh, it's only a few years old now. Um, but it, uh, it it really applies to what we call. Uh, 
carers who are uh, providing informal family unpaid care to an, an adult or an elderly person at home or in the community okay. and who are simultaneously working in the labor force. And so we call them care employees or care workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and these individuals are um, basically having a really tough time with work-life balance because they're working, you know, their 40-hour week and then they're also uh, often providing up to uh, 40 hours of informal care work at home if they're caring, for example, someone with dementia within their own residence. Mm-hmm. So so what this care in, uh, inclusive and accommodating standard does is it really asks the workplace to find ways to best accommodate these care workers, whether it be, for example, allowing them to work flex work, allowing them to work at home, incorporating technology, um, providing opportunities for emergency day leave, which, again, um, uh, uh, allow the worker to catch up their work at a a time that's convenient for them. Um, There's also opportunities to put in place a care passport, which allows the uh, employer and the, uh, the co-workers or their worker colleagues to understand the scenario that the care worker is experiencing, whether it be, for example, ongoing cancer treatment of their care recipient or whether it be uh, dealing with a multiple comorbidity of an elderly family member. Mm. So it allows the co-workers, the supervisors, the managers, and the workplace more generally to um, basically respond in a much more empathetic and compassionate way. Well, I was talking... So, I'm sorry, go yeah. ahead. No, 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 I probably said enough. No, no, no. <laughs> when I was talking with, with, your, with your colleague, uh, Professor Seti, there a few minutes ago, we were talking about uh, how the, the pandemic, if anything, Dr. Williams, has uh, opened the eyes of Canadians coast to coast to coast in terms of the contribution foreign workers make on a daily basis to keeping the wheels turning in this country. And, and uh, it's also allowed us to recognize and perhaps develop a previously un- unknown uh, appreciation of, of workers like personal support workers and caregivers of all descriptions. What do you think, uh, what benefits does or do the lessons of the pandemic hold for workers in, in our eyes now enjoying a greater level of appreciation perhaps than ever before? Yeah, that's a great question, and uh, there's all sorts of ways to respond to that because it's, uh, you know, it, it can be a range of ways to basically dignify the work that these carers do, whether they are paid personal support care workers or whether they be informal family carers. Mm-hmm. And the, the first one, obviously, is to recognize them and treat them with dignity, um, uh, and uh, and 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 best manage um, how to keep them healthy um, at work. Um, whether that, again, be informally or formally, paid or unpaid. Um, also, to um, for the paid carers to ensure that they, um, you know, be, make a living wage. A lot of these personal support workers, for example, are working casually or part-time at um, sometimes two, three jobs, mm-hmm. not necessarily just as personal support, but maybe working in the service industry as well. Yep. And oftentimes also caring informally for family members. So, we call those carers double duty carers, and they're basically providing again uh, care in a paid work environment, such as a long term care facility, but also simultaneously providing care 
uh, in the community with uh, with a family member as mm-hmm. a care recipient. So, um, you know, it's basically sustaining their health and well-being, their quality of life and their work-life balance. And certainly uh, payment is one way, but also accommodation at work is another. Um, having the employer recognize that they are caring at home and uh, uh, um, support them um, as, as best as possible through, for example, incorporating the standard into the workplace. I think the, um, the government, whether it be at the municipal or the federal level or anywhere in between, also has a role to play in ensuring that they're um, uh, achieving not only dignity in their work, but, um, again, a living wage. Yes. And, and also um, uh, uh, work-life balance. Because what we see with these particular workers is um, burnout. So mm-hmm. caregiver strain, caregiver burden, and burnout. Mm-hmm. And then... <clears throat> We're left with a much more critical situation with the care recipient, for example, having to go into acute care environments, which are very costly. Um, and then the employer obviously has to pay the, uh, the benefit costs and the disability costs of the carer who is now no longer able to work. So it doesn't end well. Mm-hmm. And again, we're not using a public health preventative strategy, such as incorporating the standard in the workplace to ensure, again, that these workers are uh, accommodated to best manage both their care work at, uh, uh, at home as well as at work. Dr. Williams, I have to leave it there, unfortunately, because I'm out of time, but I am very grateful for yours this morning. This is an important uh, conversation to have and likely the first of many uh, ongoing as, again, the the consciousness level of Canadians has been elevated. These uh, workers uh, are, I think, uh, receiving some seriously overdue recognition. And with that in mind, let's hope there's a positive outcome to more conversations like this one. Thank you for your time this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for your interest. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Oh, you too. Dr. Allison Williams joining us today from McMaster University School of Geography and Earth Sciences. Top of mind, in addition to relaxing for a little bit on Labor Day weekend, but top of mind for many BC families, of course, is back to school, which will happen in one form or another over the next few days. Now, in some parts of Canada, some students have already returned to classes. Most will, however, return following Labor Day weekend. And, of course, anxiety is uh, very... Anxiety levels are very high. And here to talk about all of this, it's actually a pleasure to welcome this guest to the show today. She's an experienced educator, and she's founder of The Conversation. Jenna Sharma is with us. Jenna, thank you for joining us, and good morning. Good morning, Sterling. Nice to be on the show with you. Well, it's great to have you with us, Jenna. First of all, tell us about uh, your your organization, The Conversation, C-A-L-M, Dr. Bonnie Henry's word. She's, u- <laughs> she's used it, be kind, be calm. How many hundreds of times have we heard be calm since March? Yes. So it's one of British Columbia's big buzzwords, and here you are, a owner of a company called The Conversation. Tell us about it. All right. Conversation is the result of me problem solving with two five-year-olds back in 2013. And conversation exists to bring calm, connected, authentic learning moments into the classroom. And the versation is the back and forth that's required for kids to understand why they're in school, what's going on. And I had no idea that we would one day be in in 2020 where there is so much chaos, turmoil, and anxiety. So conversation 
enters to help bring understanding, calm, and clarity to children, to educators. And so CALM actually stands for Connected Authentic Learning Moments. You got it, Sterling. Okay, all right. We're sorting it all out here. So let's let's before we dive into the back to school kit which you have prepared, and God bless you for doing that. Let's Thank just you. let's just take a moment here and talk. Just address mm-hmm. the conversations, and you know the kind of conversations that are going on around British Columbia and Metro Vancouver this weekend, Jenna. I mean, yeah. a lot of parents are, are the kids particularly. Oh, please let me go back. I'm I'm just going out of my mind. And mom and dad maybe not quite as settled as, as the uh, Johnny or Janie appear to be in terms of returning. So just let's talk about that, the anxiety level overall. Sure. Sterling, the weekend before school starts is a weekend that's filled with mixed emotions for children, for teachers, and for parents. Mm-hmm. And all of that is times 1,000 right now because there are so many different variables at play. So for teachers, you know, wondering what, how the classrooms will work, whether they're hybrid, online, in person, for children who may not even be able to express how they're feeling, they may not even have the language sure. to express their concerns. And, you know, for the principals that have been working all through the summer trying to do what's best for their students, for their um, employees, the teachers, it's a tricky time. There's a lot of emotion. You know, I think we're kind of lucky in in the sense that we did a dry run in the month of June, even though we were really just coming out of lockdown and much the anxiety level was much higher then than it is now. Uh, And Mm -hmm. yet the education department decided to go back to school for a few weeks to one degree or another, just to give, you talked about the principals and the staff at all the schools province-wide, at least to give them a little taste of what it would look like in the fall. That was probably a smart thing to do in retrospect, wasn't it? Yeah, well, a test run. We're all learning how to do this together at the same time. It's never been done before. Right. um, having it's just like the fire drills. You know, you do a fire drill, earthquake drills, all those things to get a sense of how this is going to work and where the gaps are, the areas we need to attend to. You know, the funniest part about about the first day of school, and I've, we have three, so I've been through it three times, and of course, we, we were all there once ourselves as children. You're quite right. You're, the weekend before the return to school, any year, any year, Jenna, it's kind of a high high anxiety level thing. But you know, it's so funny, especially with first timers, little kids going off to yeah. kindergarten or grade one, and all the buildup, and it's usually much more intense on the part of the parents than it is on the kid. Yeah. But it's so funny because all of that buildup works out to approximately 45 minutes in class on Monday (laughs) or Tuesday, right? All of that, they go to school and then they're out 45 minutes later. So it's really kind of anticlimactic. But uh, and in hindsight, of course, you you wonder why all the anxiety. But then when you're going through it as a parent, especially for the first time, there's nothing quite quite like it. And this year, uh, the the word unprecedented just keeps coming Mm -hmm. up because, in fact, everything that's happening is in some way unprecedented. You got it, Sterling. We this is brand new. This is brand new for a lot of us, and um, there's there's no history that a parent has from their experience of childhood, most likely that had them prepared for this moment. Sure. And I would suggest, you know, with the children, 
talk to them about what are you excited about? What are you scared about? What are you nervous about? Like, mm-hmm. just communicate with them and give them the space to open up, to talk about what's going on for them. Um, it's easy as parents to forget that children have emotions that they may not even be able to express, True. and that can show up like behaviors or uh, a whole range of things. And it's also important to know that they feed off what we give them. Uh, I mean, if we're walking around being hyper anxious and super nervous and on, on our knife's edge and, and just mm-hmm. about to come apart, if anything, a loud noise and we'll explode, uh, that kind of super <laughs> tense. I mean, if we're walking around like that for the whole weekend ahead of class, I mean, that uh-huh. definitely rubs off. Even though we're saying nice words, if we're all, yes. ten- all tense and hyper, the, the body language is, is louder than any words you can say. Oh, my goodness. You said it, Sterling. Uh, What you say and what you do, the children will pick up on that. And I think for a parent to just address, hey, I'm feeling really nervous Mm -hmm. about this, too, gives the child permission to feel what they're feeling. And that this is complicated. And (laughs) you you really nailed that. If if a parent is walking around um, really anxious about it all, the child's going to pick up on that. And the best thing to do is just sit down and have a conversation. Listen to each other. Right, right. And, and, and indeed, as you say, and it's very important to remember this, when you're talking to a small person, they don't mm-hmm. have the vocabulary tools that we do. They may not, mm-hmm. they may not know the word for, the, for how they're feeling. So you, you kind of have to help them sometimes. Yeah. And if a little cooperation goes a long way in terms of getting that, that, that connection that, well, I, I feel this way. I, I, don't know how to, I don't know how to describe it almost, but this is how I, I mean, that conversation's critical, isn't it? Yes, very much so. And as you're talking about that, I think about, you know, the child that wakes up in the middle of the night, they had a bad dream. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go running to their parents, but they may not be able to express what just happened. And, And the parent can come to the conclusion that maybe the child had a bad dream. And right now, it's almost like we're all in this bad dream together. Well put. I feel like that some days. In fact, I feel like that a lot sometimes. Our, our guest is Jenna Sharma. She is the founder of The Conversation. And the website, of course, is theconversation.org. And this is a group here in Vancouver that has released uh, just a couple of weeks ago the Back to School Care Kit. Now, this is funded in part by the Red Cross, by the Government of Canada, Jenna. So it's it's all up on the up, up and up and quite legit. Tell us about the Back to School Care Kit. Uh, for what level of educator is it aimed at? K to 12, post-secondary, or everyone? Great question, Sterling. This back-to-school care kit is for K to 12 educators, and it's a source of strategies, tools, and tips to support educators and supporting their students. Okay. Now, uh, in, in, in I, as I understand it, uh, this is a 12-week care kit that contains mm-hmm. contains several dozen lesson plans. So flesh that out for us a little bit, Jenna, if you would, please. Absolutely. So you are right. Uh, there will be lessons released over the next 12 weeks, and it um, is designed to support teachers in welcoming their students, addressing new protocols and changes at their school, helping them identify and communicate about challenges that have emerged in the midst of this global pandemic, 
and even other issues that have come through in 2020. Uh, there are modification suggestions, so a teacher can adapt activities based on the level of um, what would be appropriate for their students. And the overall goal is to really help the teachers get connected with the students. Sure. And for, mm-hmm. So uh, I'm curious, though, what would just uh, on a purely personal level, as you, mm-hmm. a Vancouver person, have observed us flattening the curve, getting ready, and now about to roll out uh, a a fall semester of some description. What do you think it's going to look like, Jenna? Do you think the majority of BC kids are, in fact, going to return to the classroom to one extent or another? Or will the majority opt for some form of home-based learning with occasional visits to school? Oh, that's, that's, uh, this was a guess. And I would say based on what uh, that Cooper School District is doing by offering that fourth option, yeah. a transition back to school, I think that is a wonderful way to help children and teachers get back into school through transition. Um, I, you know, I don't know. A part of me feels like everyone will go back to school and then maybe it will be another spike. They'll be back at home again. Yeah. It's really hard to say. It really is, and that's uh, that's why it's so up and down in terms of conversations. Mm-hmm. You can go from one you know one house to the next and find two yes. completely different attitudes with respect to well, our kids are going back. No, no holds yeah. barred. And then the next house, no, 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 no. We're we're homeschooling. We'll be there till Christmas, and we'll take a look at it in January. S- full stop. You you talk yeah. you talk in your uh, re uh, the post COVID classroom. Uh, hopefully, mm-hmm. that will be a reality someday. But here we are with real. COVID-19 classrooms, and you've prepared this back-to-school kit in which you discuss the new normal. So, uh, and I think that's something that uh, we're all trying to grapple with. And as as you indicated, you know, the, the school system itself is trying to accommodate all sorts of different approaches. Uh, ultimately, do you think most parents and their children are going to be well-served this semester? Wow, I think that the people who are responsible are absolutely doing their best to think about all the different scenarios. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the spirit of working together, I would strongly encourage compassion from parents to teachers, teachers to students, principals to teachers like we we must lead with compassion and understanding Mm -hmm. and of course the conversation and again friends we're talking to the person who founded this organization calm c-a-l-m conversation and the back to school kit from the conversation includes uh creating a calming classroom space and jenna it's fairly self-explanatory but again with all of the anxiety levels that a lot of kids just bring to school with them some of them imported from parents uh Mm -hmm. it's really important right from the get-go to just bring the bring the anxiety level down to a, a a manageable level right off the start isn't it Absolutely. And if you think about um, kindergarten, when we started in kindergarten, we were just getting to know each other Mm -hmm. and to be able to identify and label feelings and friends. With conversation, we can bring that level of just almost an innocent understanding of what's happening, checking in with the students, visually checking in, helping those kids be seen, heard, and valuing their experiences. 
whatever that may be. Indeed. Now, I'm looking at the website, theconversation.org, friends. It's an interesting website, too. Uh, the uh, You're talking about this care kit, and in mm-hmm. addition to this care kit, which is available for free until the end of November because of the support of the Red Cross and uh, the Government of Canada. So this is this is funded, so it's mm-hmm. free to two educators across British Columbia until the end of November, but you have additional support um, programs developed beyond just this return to class kit. Tell us about those. Yes, we're hosting weekly live interactive sessions where a teacher can drop in and speak to myself or Vanessa, and we'll walk teachers through the care kit, the benefits, the features, support them. So every Monday at 4 p.m., I go live through Eventbrite. They can find us, um, find the event, and on Saturday mornings. So at 10 o'clock today, Vanessa and I will be live um, talking to educators on Zoom, and we have professional day workshops set up to support teachers and bringing calm and connection to the classrooms. Um, we've got a Facebook group, Innovative Tools, Resources, and Strategies for Teachers. We've got a lot of different ways for educators to connect with us and to get the support and understanding that they need. Jenna, I've only got 30 seconds left. Based on the conversations you've had so far with teachers across BC, what's their greatest concern? Safety. Okay. Safety. Everybody's safety, right? Everybody's safety. Everybody's safety. Let's get through this together. The Conversation, C-A-L-M, theconversation.org is the, the website. Fantastic resource for British Columbia educators and moms and dads. Conversation Learning Foundation founder, Jenna is with us today. Uh, we do appreciate your your presence, Jenna Sharma. Uh, thanks for joining us and have a great day. Having a good weekend, too. Thank you, Sterling, you as well. Thank you so much. Conversation.org. There's Jenna Sharma. Warren Duick is our guest this time around. Mr. Duick is a partner with Anderson Tax, and he's here to talk about all of those Canadians. I have a friend in South Surrey who has a place in Birch Bay. We have family members in Toronto who own a place in Florida. Neither of those individuals have seen their American property for many, many months. And to the best of my knowledge, both of those parties are looking at, well, you know, if this comes up and keeps up much longer, we may just opt out and sell the darn place. So what happens if you make that decision? Warren Duick from Anderson Tax here to answer some questions this morning. Mr. Duick, Warren, good morning. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Sterling. It's, uh, so uh, this is a fairly common place. What percentage, just off the top of your head, Warren, I know it's, it's early, but what percentage of, of Canadians uh, own property in the United States? Well, you know, I, I don't know the percentage number, but there's lots of people that do it. As you've already noted, everybody has a friend sure. who has a property there. And uh, uh, so it's pretty commonplace. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of winters in Canada where people would rather be someplace warmer and sunnier uh, than uh, in Canada. So it, it's a pretty common occurrence, that's for sure. Okay, so and I, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot because I think we all recognize that there, it is a fairly high percentage. I wouldn't be at all surprised to hear maybe even 25% of us own property of some description in the United States. So, and, and of course, where you own property in the States matters a great deal too, doesn't it, Warren? A, because no matter what the pandemic or any other circumstances are, are, are occurring, wherever you own property in America, local taxes continue to apply, right? 
That's correct. Yeah, if people sell property in the U.S., they're subject to both U.S. federal income tax and also state income taxes. Now, not all states actually have an income tax, and notably our neighbor Washington State uh, does not have an income tax, but uh, uh, you'll still be subject to federal income tax as well. And also, of course, local taxes, for example, in Washington State, if you, your county, uh, the community in which your property uh, exists, uh, even though you haven't been there for many months, the tax bill is probably still due as of September 1st, just based on local ordinances, correct? That's true. I mean, they're paying property tax and other tax there. And of course, they right now in the pandemic, they're not able to access those properties. Right. And there's a couple other reasons why people are selling, too. Is One is because of the pandemic, there's a lot of people who might be cooped up in a condo in Los Angeles, but their bosses are saying, hey, you got to work from home. And they don't care whether they're working from home in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona, or uh, Park City, Utah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, there's pretty good U S markets for properties, uh, vacation properties. And another reason why people are selling is because the CRA has started to investigate Canadians owning property in the U S now it, it's not a crime for people to own property in the U S. Uh, but it is a, there is a tax requirement that if people earn rental income that uh-huh. they reported on their Canadian tax return. And if they do rent out the property, they have to disclose that property on a CRA form. And if they fail to do that, they face penalties. So there's a lot of things happening here. And there's kind of confluence of the pandemic, uh, CRA's investigation, people failing to make the required disclosures. Sure. And uh, some people are, you know, kind of want to get rid of the evidence, if you will. And some people are just tired of the aggravation. I mean, it's it's in a, it's pretty steep investment, no matter what you buy and where you buy it. To buy a second home anywhere involves a considerable investment. And the reason you do it typically is because you want to go spend as much time as possible there. Snowbird and all that kind those kinds of reasons, Warren. But uh, so we've, we've come to the point, though. Let's just assume that whatever the investment and wherever it's located, it's proving now, all these many months later, with no end in sight, to be, well, frankly, more trouble than it's worth. And so now we're having serious discussions about unloading the place. What do we need to be most aware of while we contemplate selling that American property? Well, there's a few things. I mean, one is that when you sell the property, because if the seller is not a U.S. citizen, I mean, they can reside in Canada and be a U.S. citizen, but if they're not a U.S. citizen, or a U.S. resident, they'll be subject to a withholding tax. It's uh, the, the acronym is FERPTA. It stands for the Foreign Investment Real Property Tax Act in the U.S. And the withholding on the sale of the property is up to 15% of the selling price. Now, the seller can uh, reduce that withholding tax if they apply for a clearance certificate. Okay, right. And so they can reduce it down to closer to what the actual tax is. But regardless of whether tax is withheld or not, they're still going to have to file a U.S. income tax return to report that. And if they hold it jointly with their spouse, they'll each have to file a tax return. You can't file a joint tax return unless you're U.S. person, either a U.S. citizen or U.S. resident. Okay. And one of the tricks here with the withholding is that 
if they do not have either a U.S. Social Security number, and I'm not talking about a Canadian social insurance number, but a U.S. Social Security number, or something called an Individual Taxpayer Identification Number, or ITIN, but they get the tax withheld. Let's say on you know uh, they sell their property for a hundred thousand mm-hmm. dollars, and there's fifteen thousand withheld Held back. Right? You can imagine this goes into the IRS bureaucracy. This fifteen thousand dollars, and uh, even though it's from John Doe, they have no idea who John Doe is unless that number exists. And so it will take months and months and months to get that money applied to uh, that individual's tax account. Mm -hmm. So to get an individual taxpayer identification, that's one of the things you want to do in the selling process. Now, And ideally, ideally to have that number in advance of the sale then, Warren? Well, you can only get it with the sale or if you filed another tax return. But an important bit of paperwork to include then. Absolutely. Gotcha. The other thing that people don't think about is from the tax side, of course, they're going to pay U.S. tax on it, but they're going to pay Canadian tax too. And that they, that property they bought for, let's just say it was $100,000 U.S., you know, in 2010, uh-huh. and they sell for $100,000 U.S. In other words, they say there was no gain on the property. Right. There, there is still a foreign exchange gain associated with the property because in 2010, the Canadian dollar and U.S. dollar were at par. Right. But in 2020, the, the uh, U.S. dollar is way above the Canadian dollar. So there's a big foreign exchange gain, and that will be taxable in Canada. So they're going to get a nasty surprise there. The second thing is... Or so the other even, thing even, is, even though there's not a profit actually realized on the transaction, because you make money on the exchange, the government sees that as a profit and will tax the heck out of it. That's absolutely true. Gotcha. Yeah. The other thing on the U.S. side is that if you have rented the property and you didn't file a tax return and claim the depreciation, you will actually have the cost of the property reduced by the depreciation you didn't claim. In Canada, depreciation is a discretionary item, but for U.S. tax purposes, it's either use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you consult with a lot of Canadians, clearly, who own property in the United States, Mr. Duick. I wonder what uh, what sort of sentiment you're hearing from your clients these days. Obviously, we're having a conversation because a lot of people, or certainly enough Canadians, are speculating on unloading U.S.-based property. Uh, is that a, a fairly w- widely held sentiment among your clients, Warren? Yeah, we, no, we see a lot of action in that uh, area. We work for people across Canada from our offices in Vancouver, Calgary, and Edmonton. Right. And um, we get uh, inquiries on the web at andersontax.ca. And uh, so there's a lot of action happening in this. And I think, you know, it's going to be more now because people are realizing their hope was that in October they were going to go down and do their snowbird thing. Sure. But... Uh, you know, it doesn't look like anything like that is going to happen. Uh, yeah, I have some friends in Montreal who typically take the uh, hook, the big trailer up to the truck and uh, go to Texas every winter uh, and spend their their winters down there. They're not doing that this year. They're going to hook up the big trailer and drive from Montreal 
to of all places Fort Langley, British Columbia, and they're going to win. They're going to they're going to winter here in, in the Great White North. They want no part of the states, and I would imagine that they're not alone in that department at all. And we don't know. That's the frustrating part for many of your clients, I'm sure, Warren. We just don't know when this thing's going to end. Yeah, interesting enough. Uh, in addition to Canadians selling their U.S. vacation property, we're also getting a lot of inquiries from Americans looking to acquire property in Canada, Mm -hmm. which they see as a somewhat safer jurisdiction. Uh, It it also has some business sides to it, too. Uh, The interesting thing is that Hollywood, uh, the California movie industry, is essentially closed down. But the Vancouver uh, movie industry in Calgary and other parts of Canada is open. So there's some Canadian actors and entertainers that are moving to Canada, um, you know, with the idea that they can actually work here. And, and there's a lot of other people. It goes the whole range of others who are saying, uh, you know, they were always thinking about coming to Canada, and now they're going to take the steps. So, uh, you know, we see a lot of cross-border real estate transactions going both ways. Interesting stuff. We appreciate your time this morning, and you mentioned the website. Let me repeat it, please, for people who are interested in perhaps uh, pursuing this, especially if, like my friend in White Rock, they're really looking at unloading that Birch Bay property. It really has become more trouble than it's worth. AndersonTax.ca is where you'll find Warren Duick and all of his teammates. Warren, thanks very much for this. A, a, a very important conversation to have, and I'd like to do it again sometime, perhaps as fall progresses. That'd be my pleasure. Thank you very much, Sterling. Anderson Tax and there's partner Warren Duick. Emma Lancaster is joining us now. Emma is the Managing Director, Marketing and Development with Coastal Jazz, here to talk to us about uh, the Vancouver International Jazz Festival, a big deal every summer. It has become a real thing in our city. Emma, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So uh, I'm on the uh, Coastal Jazz website here, and of course the first thing you notice is the uh, the notification of the cancellation of the uh, the 2020 festival. So what exactly this morning is the status of the 2020 festival? Is it, still, is it just gone, or are there plans over the fall in the weeks ahead, Emma, to do a little bit? Well, what we're trying to do is to give people something to look at in the jazz idiom over the fall. Uh, we sadly had to make the decision in April to sure. cancel the actual festival. Sure. Um, but there's so much talent in the city, and people are so hungry to see really good music that uh, we're trying to put together a little streaming series that should go out over the fall between September and December. Ah, okay. So this is this is not the first organization that has decided to go virtual with uh, with their uh, 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 the program that they had to cancel. Uh, have you done any streaming up until this point, or is this now a new thing for the fall, Emma? Uh, this is new to us. We have... 35 years of history putting on live events, and streaming is a brand new thing for us. So we're both excited and terrified. So will will the will the idea be to stream from as as we see and you know go to YouTube and, and there's all sorts of uh, examples of artists who are li- like many you know absolutely 
dying to perform and, and unable to do so because there just aren't many venues, so they're doing it at home, producing little pieces and songs and all the rest of it. Is the idea of streaming jazz to fans in Vancouver to have the artists do it from home, or Emma, is it possible to have streaming from a small venue where you do have some live folks in the room? You've got it. We have been uh, working pretty hard to make sure that the audio and the video are really good quality. So we're actually going to uh, record concerts at Frankie's Jazz Club. Oh, great. And give them a little bit of a tweak to make sure that the sound is perfect and the visuals are really good and that people have a really quality experience. I know down at White Rock, the folks at uh, Blue Frog Studios, uh, excellent recording facility, have been doing, and performance venue as well, have been doing similar, uh, uh, again, little musical treats uh, based on performances from their venue to subscribers and fans on the internet. How do you get the word out, and what kind of schedule are you looking at, Emma, in terms of the weeks ahead now? Well, we thought... You know, a lot of our colleagues in a whole bunch of the different arts uh, uh, were thrust into doing this with no real idea of best practices. So we thought, "Eh, maybe we should ask our audience. They're definitely opinionated, and they'll tell us when they don't like something. So we sent out a little survey to people asking them, you know, how would you like to receive this? What, What are good times for you? What are the platforms that work for you? Uh, And we're just gathering that information now. So our intention is to roll out a concert every couple of weeks through the fall uh, based on what people are are telling us they'd like to see. Is the deadline or has the deadline for submissions to your survey ended, Emma? Or are people who are (laughs) listening... So people who are listening to us right now, early on a beautiful, beautiful Saturday morning on the Labor Day weekend, jazz fans, and I am one, uh, who might want to see so-and-so, can go to, I'm assuming, coastaljazz.ca and find the survey? You bet. Okay. And so you can still uh, participate in the survey and have your opinions noted. Indeed you can. So what, what are you getting now? You're, you're, you said you're starting to gather results from enthusiastic participants. What's the buzz? What are people telling you? It's in my, my thoughts were that people might want to take a little break in their workday and watch in the daytime. But nope, apparently jazz is a nighttime form. People want to watch uh, in the evening. And okay. uh, YouTube seems to be the most popular platform, but there's there's others coming up behind. So we'll see where we where we land. Interesting stuff. Now, from your long list of performers, and of course, over the years with the Vancouver the TD International Jazz Festival, you've got quite a roster of performers, both local and international. When you talk to local performers, as I mentioned, many of whom are probably just falling all over themselves trying to fi- trying to perform somewhere what what are you hearing about artists and musicians who are uh, i, I want to say i don't want to say desperate per- to perform but they are that that's what they do and they haven't had a chance to do much of it so what are they doing i think they're having a really challenging time we have on our facebook profile we've asked anybody who wants to uh pivot to teaching online mm-hmm to just post and say what they teach and how they teach it and how people can get in touch with them so that to help people get that word out. Uh, we've also been concentrating on, on helping people promote their record sales. Mm-hmm. We had a series on our website called Buy a Record, Make a Difference all through uh, April, May, June, and July where we highlighted various local performers and uh, and how you could support them by purchasing music if you were able to 
in these difficult times. Uh, but I really do think that people are getting really creative. A lot of our colleagues are figuring out ways to do micro-concerts and uh, while the weather is still good, trying to do very small-scale outdoor things and we salute and support that for sure. Indeed. Now, uh, back to the the, the headline of uh, the Jazz Festival. It is the TD Vancouver International Jazz Festival and has been for quite some time. Uh, sponsorship, of course, is key to pulling off a successful uh, festival year in and year out. Uh, how about sponsorship this year? In the year of cancellation, have you received assurances from your sponsors that, okay, we get it, nothing anyone around here could do about it, We'll be back with you next year, no problem. We are so grateful to our sponsors, especially to our title sponsor, TD. They have been so supportive and so kind in this really challenging time. Uh, so we're, we're okay. You know, the organization is strong. We're going to come through it uh, in a good position to do a festival again next year, hopefully. Uh, and we're looking at different scenarios of what that looks like. Is it... Uh, are we look, focusing on Canadian talent because of travel restrictions? Are we planning for more outdoor concerts because indoors might be restricted in terms of what we can offer? Yep. So we're just uh, we're just making a plan A and then a plan B and then a plan C and. Uh, and hopefully it's all going to work out just fine. So plan A, of course, is do something in 2020, for crying out loud. We got scratched and canceled and all the rest of it, but we're not just going to walk away. We're going to get something on the record, no pun intended. Uh, and so we're going to do these virtual uh, appearances and, and shows over the over the weeks ahead. Uh, is, there, is there any possibility, uh, for example, as things, uh, you know, in the new year, we don't know what's around the corner, do we, Emma? But let's just suppose hopefully, that in the new year, uh, Dr. Henry and others say, well, you know, we can have, we can open, the movie theaters are opened up now, so why wouldn't concert venues be soon along, uh, under reduced circumstances like the cinema is right now? Uh, mm -hmm. If in the new year we get that kind of f freeing up of actual audience space, I don't doubt there will be any shortage of performers to, uh, to get up on stage. Oh, you bet. We're so fortunate in Vancouver that we could put together a killer jazz festival with just the people who live within a, a one-hour drive of uh, Vancouver. So there would be, be terrific. There would, Coastal Jazz, is that flexible, too? I mean, that's the good thing about local and as well-organized as you are. You could whistle something up pretty quickly, couldn't you? Here's open. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, the talent piece of, of our activity is, is the most beautiful, easy, terrific Piece, that there's lots of people who are are very excellent players and wonderful people well, you, uh, that are very available to us. So if that border remains closed and if travel restrictions remain in place, even if we expand it out to Canada, there's a wonderful variety of performers. Well, thanks for this this morning. We appreciate it. And we hope you have considerable success with the video portion and even more success with getting people and musicians back together in the same room. Emma, thanks for this. Thanks for having me, Sterling. Emma Lancaster from CoastalJazz.ca. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.